Hear the word of the Lord from Nehemiah 4:15 through 23. When our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his own work. From that day on, half of my servants worked on construction and half held the spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah who were building the wall. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other. And each of the builders had his sword strapped at his side while he built. The man who sounded the trumpet was beside me. And I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, the work is great and widely spread, and we are separated on the wall, far from one another. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. So we labored at the work, and half of them held the spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. I also said to the people at that time, let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem, that they may be a guard for us by night and may labor by day. So neither I nor my brothers nor my servants nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes. Each kept his weapon at his right hand. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. My name is Justin. I'm the lead pastor here at the church. And if you are just joining us, we are in the middle of an in-depth study of the Old Testament book of Nehemiah. Now, the majority of the time at Sacred City, we preach expository sermons. What that means is that we usually choose a, a book of the Bible and then study it and preach through it verse by verse. And we usually go Old Testament, New Testament, Old Testament, New Testament. Now, why do we do that? We do that because 2 Timothy 3.16 says this, quote, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness. Listen, that the man or woman of God might be complete, equipped for every good work. Lots of important things in that scripture. One, scripture is God-breathed. That means it's inspired by him. It's not the invention of man. Mankind didn't come up with it on his own, and it developed over thousands of years. No, God spoke through man, used man as his instrument, and, and wrote the scriptures. All of it is inspired by God. It is infallible. It is without error. Now listen, the word of God is what is meant to teach us, instruct us, correct us, and train us to live righteously the way that God commands us. And then lastly, it said, the word of God is what, listen, equips us for every good work. The word of God equips us for everything we need to do out in the world. If you want to know how to be a more godly husband or father, you go to the scriptures. If you want to know how to be a godly man or woman, you go to the scriptures. If you want to know anything, we must first come to the scriptures and ask, what does God say about this? This is why Proverbs 1.7, written by Solomon, the wisest man to ever live, he says this, listen, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. All true knowledge begins with God. The fear of God, the awareness of God, the awe of God, all knowledge begins with God. So we purposefully and patiently work our way through the word of God verse by verse and let God instruct us in the ways that we should go. As I said before, we are currently studying this historical book of Nehemiah. And since it is the Word of God, even though this book is roughly 2,500 years old, we should expect it to be relevant to us today. We should expect God's Word. You should come in here every single morning and ex or Sunday and expect God to speak to you through His Word. Because He's living and active. In fact, what you're going to find out is as we study our verses today and look at Nehemiah, when you look around at our society today, it feels very similar, eerily similar to that of Nehemiah's day. See, we, like Nehemiah, are standing among the ruins of a Christian civilization. If you didn't know this, our nations and our founding of our nation, our nation's morals, 
values, and laws were deeply influenced by Christianity and the Bible. They were built upon the foundation of Scripture. Now, that Christian foundation has been under, under attack since the, the very beginning, really, and, for, and it's been progressively getting more intense. The last 150 years or more, it's been specifically intense. Aaron Wren, a cultural commentator, has said there's basically only three cultures in the world. There's a positive culture that sees Christianity as a positive good for society, sees Christians as a positive good for society. They say, oh yeah, we, re we realize that Christianity is good for the world and we want more Christians. So if you're a Christian business, yeah, Mrs. Men, yeah, come on. If you want to plant a Christian school, yeah, come on. But then there's neutral cultures. Neutral cultures, they think like, oh, we don't need more religion and it doesn't really matter if you're a Christian or not a Christian. We can all just get along. So Christianity is just seen as kind of neutral. Then there's negative cultures. And negative cultures sees Christianity as a net negative, something that's bad for the world. They see Christians as people who are against the world. They're, they're not for the, the flourishing of human beings. And what's unique about our society and our culture is we were created a positive culture. We were founded as a positive culture. And over the years, we kind of transitioned to a neutral culture, and now we are in a season where we are, we are very clearly a negative culture. People, our culture, the, those in high positions of society, sees Christians and Christianity as something that's uh, not good for the future of our country. And so we, like Nehemiah, are kind of standing among the ruins of a Christian civilization saying, what should we do about that? Well, as we continue our study in chapter 4, this week it's going to get really practical. We see Nehemiah in the midst of this crumbling society teach God's people to do two things, two really big overarching things, to build anyway and to defend what you're building. To build anyway and to defend what you're building. Let me pray and we'll get into it this morning. Father God, we thank you for the work that you've already done for us this morning, calling us in to worship and know you, giving us the ability to confess our sins and receive forgiveness, that we are cleansed standing before you. And now we come to you and we need instruction, we need wisdom, we need to be corrected, we need your word to do all that it says it will do in our life. Would you equip us now to leave this building, to go out and to build and defend what we are building? God, I am a sinner who still sins in thought, word, and deed, and so I need you to forgive my sin and also to hide me behind your word so that I don't teach anything in error and that uh, your people would hear your voice and be instructed in your word and not my opinion. I pray that you would do this for our good and your glory. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Please open up your Bible with me to Nehemiah chapter 4. We're going to be starting in verse 15. Uh, actually, we're going to start in verse 14 because I want to get us caught up. If you were not here last week, I hope you listened to the podcast. You can find that on YouTube. You can find that on Facebook. You can find that on our podcast. It comes out a little bit later. Um, but this is where we ended up last week. Verse 14. Nehemiah is surrounded by enemies. He's called, been called by God to rebuild the walls, to protect the city, to rebuild the city for the glory of God. And the enemies all around them have surrounded them. They've came in. They've threatened them. We want to destroy you. We want to kill you. They've been part of, taking part in this propaganda campaign to attack their morale and attack their sense, to, their desire to build. They're saying things like, the job's too big for you. You can never do it. We're going to come in there and crush you. Any moment we want, we can come there and kill you. Kill you. Even the weak among them are saying, guys, let's just quit. This is too hard of a job. Rebuilding the walls, we can't do it. Those outside the city, the, the Jews outside the city, are, just come back with us, come back. It's too hard. Just quit. The culture's too far gone. Things are too dark. It's just not going to happen. And, ne and Nehemiah makes some very wise preparations. He calls all the people to get together with their families, and he says, here's the call right here. Do not be afraid of them. The most the number one, the most repeated command in all of the Bible for Christians, do not be afraid of them. Fear not. Why? Because remember the Lord who is great and terrible. So Proverbs says the fear of man is a snare. 
You know what a snare is? It's a little trap that a rabbit or something gets caught in it and they die. The fear of man is a snare. He says, don't be afraid of men. Don't be afraid what man can do. Fear God. God is on your side. If God is on your side, who can be against you? All right? So remember the Lord, and who is great and awesome, and look, and fight. Fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. So what Nehemiah does is in the low places of the wall, he has people gathered together by their closest relatives, and he says, listen, this is, we are on defensive attack mode here. Anybody that attacks us, fight them, right? So he organizes them in this kind of um, strategy, and he says, be ready, because at any moment, the enemy might come in and try to kill us, and you have to be ready to fight. That's the context we're in. Now, Nehemiah is going to do something, listen, that I think might change your perspective of the Christian life. I'm praying today the main idea that you learn from this text would change how you see the Christian life from this day on. And here it is. You're going to see men and women working with one hand, having a tool to work and provide in one hand, and having a weapon in the other. That we are called both to build for the kingdom of God, and we are called to defend for the kingdom of God. Let's get in our text this morning. Verse 15. When our enemies heard that it was known to us. What was known to them? The plan. Remember, the plan of attack. So Nehemiah got the jump on them. He heard the rumors. He heard the plans. And he was a man of action. And he said, gather together with your families, arm yourself for battle, and fight. Not because you hate what's in front of you, but because you love what's behind you. Nehemiah got the jump on them. And that God had frustrated their plan. How did God frustrate their plan? Through Nehemiah's planning and action. We all returned to the wall each to his work. Again, reoccurring theme. Back to work. <laughs> Guess what? Reoccurring theme. After service today, what are you thinking about? Back to work. This is one of the things that you've been called to do with your life. Back to work. Back to work. Back to work. Somebody say amen with that. Amen. All right, come on. I need some help this morning. Verse 16. From that day on... Half of my servants worked on construction and half held the spears, the shields, the bows, and the coats of mail. Now here's the idea. Nehemiah's looking out and he's seeing how each of his people are gifted. Remember we talked about the perfumers last week, right? I joked a lot about them. Now, which group do you think the perf perfumers got drafted into? The fighters or the builders? I would probably say the builders. They can really not, they can screw up a lot less over there than if you put a sword in his hand. Give him a hammer. Give the guy a hammer. Here's a shovel. Here's a broom. Here's a broom, right? So he sees this. Now, some of us are going to be more fighters. Got any eights in the room? Anybody doesn't mind a good, good fight? And then there's some of us are going to be more, more leaning towards construction, leaning towards building things up. So he separates them in, in, roughly by their giftedness. Keep reading. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah. The leaders are out there on the wall. They're not leading from their ivory towers somewhere. Verse 17. And I'm going to do something different today. I'm just going to read all the way through this passage, and then, and then I'm going to make it really practical for us instead of jumping around. Here we go. Verse 17. Who were building on the wall. Look, those who carried burdens, again, laborers, were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other. Okay, so if you're pushing a wheel, wheelbarrow, you're, you got to figure out how to do that with your weapon at, clo at, close, at, at close, close hand, right? If you're digging, you got to figure out how to do that one-handed, right? Maybe they had a tool belt that could put that bad boy in there. But here's the idea. Even those who were drafted as more of builders in construction, they had to be ready at a moment's notice to pull out their sword and fight. Okay? So they're not just, here's the fighters and here are the workers. Even the workers had to have a sword in one hand and a trowel in the other. Keep reading. Verse 18. And each of the builders had his sword strapped at his side while he built. The man who sounded the trumpet 
was beside me. Okay, here's the idea. Remember, the wall is about half built. There's some low points. There's some point, points that are not sturdy. They're not solid. And he, he realizes, as a good leader, looking out on his city, we're vulnerable here. Here's the place we're most vulnerable as a, I'm going to say it, as a church, as a society, whatever. So what is he going to do? He's put people there to work and to labor, but he's also said, if the enemy attacks us there, we're really vulnerable. So I've got the trumpet, the man with the trumpet right beside me, the bugler right beside me. And so if they attack us there, we're going to run there, we're going to blow the trumpet, and I want everyone, drop what you're doing, drop your labor, and come run and, and, and rally beside me where we can fight there. Now think about the idea. If I'm there and, and I'm, I'm a stone cutter, right? I'm focused on my work. I'm trying to level out this, this stone and square it off and I'm chiseling and I'm spending all day focused on my work. I gotta build a wall. Before I can build a wall, I gotta make this stone square and then I gotta figure out how to get it there and I'm focused and then I could be at danger of being attacked, right? My back is turned. I'm focused on my work. And so Nehemiah plans for that, and he says, I'm going to stand here, and I'm going to keep watch, and the leader's going to keep watch. We're going to be watchmen on the wall, and if we see the enemy attacking us at a certain direction, we're going to blow the trumpet, and we want everyone to rally to that side. <clears throat> Verse 19, and I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, the work is great and widely spread, and we are separated on the wall far from one another. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Look, our God will fight for us. Nehemiah is reminding them, this is God's work we're doing. I know it's just stone cutting. I know you're sweeping and you're brooming and you're wheelbarrowing and you're carrying labor. But this is God's work. And we're about to fight. We might have to fight. We might have to protect it. But this is the work of God. Nehemiah is reminding them. Verse 21. So we labored at the work. Hear this word. It's used repeatedly. Labor. Labored. It's hard work. And half of them held the spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. That's a work day, ladies and gentlemen. From the break of dawn till the time the stars came out, they're working a 12, 14, 16-hour shift. Keep moving. I also said to the people at that time, let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem, that they may be a guard for us by night and may labor die by day. What's he saying there? Some of the people came into the city. They didn't live in the city. They came into the city to work on the wall. So what he's saying is now, because all of this threat surrounding us, we want everyone to stay in the city at night. Don't go home at night. Stay here. Sleep around us here so that the enemy attacks us by night. All hands on deck. Everyone can be ready to fight. Not only that, verse 23. So neither I nor my brothers nor my servants nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes. Each kept his weapon at his right hand. Here's what he's saying. If we're going to be ready at all times. So I'm not taking my clothes off and, <laughs> and hopping in the shower and getting attacked. That would be bad for us. The, the bugle goes off and you're in the shower. That's a bad day, right? You don't want to be caught like that, right? So we didn't even take our clothes off. We are focused on the work. We've got our weapon at our side. We're ready. Now, last week, I used the analogy, and I said that the Christian life is like a hockey game. If you remember this. See, in hockey, you've got to be prepared for two things. One, playing hockey, and two, fighting or defending yourself, right? Now, hockey is pretty unique that way. Like, like if you are in the U UFC, you have one job, fight. Get in the ring and fight. That's your only job, right? Now, if you're playing golf, you've also only got one job, golf. Go out there and have a good, good time and, and play golf. But in hockey, you've actually got two jobs, hockey and fighting, right? Now, this is what it's like to be a Christian in the world. It's not like the UFC where all we do is fight, nor is it like golf that we never fight, right? We are called by God, listen, to build things for the glory of God, and we are also commanded by God to defend that work from attack. The New Testament says that we are both. He calls Christians both workmen 
and soldiers for Jesus. Workmen for the Lord Jesus Christ and soldiers for Christ Jesus. Now, here is my contention this morning. Many pastors have failed to prepare their people for this reality because they have either turned the faith into a UFC fight or into a game of golf. Let me break those down for you. Mega church Christianity often turns the faith into nothing more than a game of golf. The pastor is usually more like a CEO. When you go to these church churches, usually if you want to be discipled, I was discipled in a church like this, you say, I want to be discipled, they say, come play golf with me. Literally. It's like, I don't play golf. I don't want to play golf. I don't really know if I want to be stuck with you for four hours. He's like, come play golf with me, right? That's usually, if you don't golf, it's hard to be discipled in a lot of churches like this. Now listen, here's what's going on. In these churches where the pastor is more of a CEO, they usually work for Jesus in a way that produces comfortable Christians and often reproduces children who aren't prepared for life in the real world. Too often these pastors preach soft sermons of easy believism that do not prepare people for the fight of faith in the real world. Now, what happens? They come in and they have a really fun sermon series, and they've got a lot of illustrations, and the, the sermons flow really quickly, and the, and the music's all happy clappy, and I came in and I feel good about myself, and I have a latte, and there's, there's a plethora of all kind of things for people to be involved in, and I just feel better about my life, and I get sent out of here feeling better about my life. And many times, these kids grow up, and they have kids ministry, and they have youth ministry, and they have all this stuff going on, and they grow up, and they've only been kind of fed baby food their entire life, and then they get sent off to college, and what happens? Their freshman year, they get philosophically punched in the mouth. What is humanism? What is secularism? What is, and all of these ideas that the pastor had never addressed, that their parents had never addressed, they aren't prepared for, they get punched in the mouth in college, and many of them, many statistics say literally 50 to 70% of them are walking away from Jesus Christ and never coming back to his church. Why? They were never taught that they are in a fight, and they were never taught that they need to learn how to fight back. Listen how Paul describes the Christian life and ministry from 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5. It says this, For though we walk in the flesh, we're not waging war according to the flesh. Listen to this, waging war. We're in a war. It's not a fleshly war. What does that mean? That means most of the time it doesn't require you to pull out a real sword and fight. Sometimes it does, but not all of the time. But we are in a war. Now keep reading. For the weapons of our warfare, what are our weapons? They're not of the flesh, but they do have divine power to de destroy strongholds. Well, that's good to know, but what are our weapons? Listen, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. And we, look, take every thought captive to obey Christ. First thing we need to see here is we are in a war. Second thing we need to see is we have a real enemy. His name is Satan. He is the father of lies. Well, what is a lie? A lie is not a smack across the face. A lie is not, a, you know, chopping your arm off. A lie is something that gets into your mind and affects your thinking. See, Genesis chapter 3, how did Satan, quote unquote, overthrow the world? How did Satan throw it all into chaos? How did Satan tempt and deceive Adam and Eve? He did it through a lie. Did God really say? No, no, no. Here's the lie of humanism. You don't need God. You can learn all about the world without God. You can have all the knowledge and all the power and all the authority. You can know between good and evil. You don't need God for that. That's how Satan overthrew Adam and Eve. So listen. Our war is primarily a war of words, a war of ideas, 
a war of arguments, a war of opinions. Paul says specifically there, anything that is raised up against the knowledge of God, anything that attacks the knowledge of God is our enemy and is meant to be destroyed. Did you hear that word? We are meant to destroy strongholds. I wish somebody would have told me this in children's church. Men, women, you're meant to destroy. I thought I was just meant to be a nice guy and be raised up to be a nice guy. If somebody would have told me in kids' church that I was meant to destroy things, I would have said, yeah, my mom tells me that all the time. I am, that's what I'm good at. I've been breaking stuff from the day I was born. Men, you're meant to destroy stuff. Women, you're meant to destroy stuff. Well, what are we meant to destroy? Everything that stands up against the knowledge of God. Every lofty, lying opinion. Why? Because ideas have consequences. Colossians 2.8, Paul says this, quote, See to it that no one takes you captive. What? Listen, when you talk to your kids about going uh, to the park, you tell them, right? You, you prepare them when they go. Hey, listen, if anybody offers you candy, you say no. If anybody says, hey, come pet my dog, you say no. If anybody says, hey, your parents said I could come pick you up, you say no. Why? Because you know there are evil people that want to take them captive, right? Paul's saying we are in a real war and people are trying to take us captive and take our children captive. We need to wake up to that reality. How are they trying to take us captive, you ask? Paul says like this. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. Look, according to human tradition. So man-centered, humanistic philosophy. According to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. In other words, humanism comes from demonic inspiration. The elemental spirits of the world. All other philosophies other than the Christian worldview comes from demons. So if we don't want our children to be taken captive, we got to be aware of those philosophies. we got to point them out and protect our children against them. And we ourselves have to be protected against them. See, the main way people get taken captive by Satan is through ungodly ideas taking hold of their thinking and turning them away to Jesus. Turning to them... Here's what every humanistic philosophy says. Something other than Jesus can save you. Something other than Jesus is the answer you're looking for. Something other than Jesus will get you the society that you're looking for. Every humanistic philosophy says that. See, Elon Musk has famously called the cultural Marxism that has taken over most of the educational institutions, the media outlets, and the Democratic Party, he calls it the woke mind virus. The woke mind virus, and he's not wrong. Now, how do you fight mind viruses? With the truth poured piping hot, 130 proof. Barrel proof. Don't water the truth down. We're talking about philosophical ideas that are trying to take children captive. We are not called to dance around them. We're not called to pussyfoot around them. We're not called to be gentle with ideas. We're called to destroy them. See, one of the things that the woke mind virus tries to do is make a philosophy coalesce with a person's identity. So then if you try to fight against the philosophy, you're harming a person. See, no, 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 that's a faulty vision of your own soul, your own personhood, your own identity. Please make a separation between your philosophy of life and your soul and yourself. We are trying to attack an idea to bring freedom to your soul. We are called to destroy any idea that stands against the knowledge of God by what? Exposing them, bringing them into the light. Why? Because like a vampire, you bring that sucker into the light and nah, it withers. Bring these woke ideas, bring these human philosophies into the light and show how broke they are. They cannot produce what people want them to produce. They cannot produce a better society. They cannot produce human flourishing. 
We have to correct them with the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. So error number one, trying to build a church or a family without actually training people how to fight. But then there's the churches and Christian families that never really build anything because they spend all their time reading the Bible, arguing over theology, and fighting the negative influences of the culture. Now, these are often led by pastors with an advanced theological degree who had been to seminary, but they've never actually built anything in their life. Why? Because seminary doesn't train you in how to build. Now, here's the problem. Many young men, they, they come to faith and they want to follow Jesus. They say, what's my next step? I'm going to go to seminary. What does seminary teach you to do? Seminary teaches you how to study the Bible, which is a good thing. By the way, I have been to seminary. I'm not totally against seminary. But when you go to seminary as a young man, your nose gets put in the Bible, and sometimes it gets stuck there. And seminary teaches you, teaches you how to study the Bible, but it doesn't teach you how to build a successful life, how to build a life of virtue and character, how to build a marriage, how to build a family, how to build a church, how to build an organization for the glory of God. Many times, seminary just want, gets you stuck in the Word of God and causes you to fight. So all you're doing is swinging a sword for the rest of your life. These folks often have Bible verses and they have good theology, but if they build anything, it's usually a bunker. Just, I'm going to build, now we have to have walls, okay? Nehemiah's building walls. Walls are good, right? But it's not a bunker, right? It's not a bunker. We're here for the world. We're not going to just dig down and hunker down and wait for Jesus to return. He's given us a job to do. We're called to build and to fight until the knowledge of the glory of the Lord covers the face of the earth as the waters cover the sea. See, what Nehemiah teaches us today is if we want to see the mission of God advance in our city and the kingdom of God really change our city, we are going to have to learn how to build and fight. We want our kids to keep the faith. We want to hand off this legacy of faith and have them build on it and be better than we are. We need to teach them both aspects of the Christian life, how to work for God and how to defend that work for the glory of God. And I want you to think about this. Everywhere, without exception, everywhere that Christianity has spread over the past 2,000 years, Christians have preached the gospel, converted sinners, and built Christian institutions for the glory of God. They did not go and just preach the gospel. They preached the gospel, converted the lost, and then taught them everything that Jesus had commanded them, right? What does that mean? They taught them how to build Christian marriages. They taught them how to build Christian families. They taught them how to build Christian churches, how to build Christian schools, Christian hospitals, Christian orphanages, Christian homeless shelters, Christian businesses, Christian nonprofits, Christian governments. And this has historically been done in hostile territories where Christians knew they were in for a fight in the midst of all their work. So here's the two major questions that I want us to answer today. One, what is God calling you to build? And two, how will you defend it? I'm going to get really practical this morning. What we are talking about here is construction work. It's labor intensive. It, it's oftentimes menial labor. It's repetitive. It's not very flashy most of the time. See, I before I went to seminary, before I became a pastor, I was a home builder. And construction work is very monotonous. It's laborious. It's not sexy. It's no matter if it's hot or cold, you still got the same job to do. It's often trudging through the mud to get to the to get to the place where you're going to do your work. And then guess what it is? It's carrying wood. And then after that, it's 
striking lines and squaring things up and building the same thing one after the other. You can't get creative all of a sudden, decide to do, do it on your own, right? You got to use the same lumber back and back. You got to nail it down. You got to glue it down. You got to put it together. You got to square it up. You got to stand the walls up. You got to plumb them. You got to make sure they're square. It's laborious. It's oftentimes monotonous. The same is for us building our Christian lives. It's hammer and nail type of stuff. It's reading your Bible. It's loving your wife. It's teaching your kids. It's paying your bills. It's cooking dinners. It's changing diapers. It's inviting your neighbors over for dinner. It's sending emails. It's reading bedtime stories. It's serving your church. It's building the wall one brick at a time. Right? You come home from work. I come home from work. I ask my wife, how was your day? What did you, you do today? She's like, what did I do today? The same thing I do every day. I cooked. I cleaned. I wiped booties. Right? I threw away diapers. And I don't dare say, well, what else did you do? Right? Because I would be killed in that moment. Right? But here's the idea. That's construction work. That's brick making work. But here's the, here's the issue. Many of us have a hard time seeing how that type of work connects to building the kingdom of God. Listen, I believe the gospel is going to win. What do I mean by that? I believe the gospel of Jesus Christ is going to convert the nations and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord of all. I believe that Jesus is not a loser savior sitting on the throne struggling over if he can convert people or not. I believe he's sovereign to rule and to convert the nations. And you know what that means? That means, the, means his kingdom is coming to earth as it is in heaven and one day this world will be converted and we will reign with him. That's what it means. Right? So here's what's happening. We have a hard time seeing how our brick-making work, our day-in and day-out of making sandwiches and doing stuff like that, connects to that work, that total work of renewal. Many of us have a hard time seeing how that construction work really matters. Well, listen to this. <clears throat> After the great fire of 1666 that leveled London, the world most famous architect at the time, Christopher Wren, was commissioned to rebuild St. Paul's Cathedral. Beautiful cathedral. <clears throat> One day in 1671, Christopher Wren observed three bricklayers on a scaffolding, one crouched, one half standing, and one standing tall, working very hard and fast. To the first bricklayer, the one crouched down, Christopher Wren asked the question, hey, what are you doing? To which the bricklayer replied, I'm, I'm a bricklayer. I'm working hard laying bricks to feed my family. Christopher Wren looked at the second bricklayer and said, well, what are you doing? And the second bricklayer responded, well, I'm a builder. I'm building a wall. But the third bricklayer, the most productive of the three and the future leader of the group, when asked the question, well, what are you doing, replied with a gleam in his eye, I'm building a cathedral. I'm building a cathedral to the almighty God. All three of these men were doing the same thing. All of them chiseling stone, squaring it up, chopping off the, the lopsided edges, putting it in a wall, building a wall. All three of them were doing the same thing. But one only saw how his work was connected to his paycheck. Another one only saw how his work was connected to what was in front of him, a wall. The other one could connect his work not only to what's in front of him, but also what the future hold, held for him, a cathedral that the world would drop its jaws at and worship. A cathedral to the Almighty God. See, most of what God is calling us to do is really just bricklaying. But we need to see how it connects to the bigger vision of building walls. That means raising kids and raising families and building a church and building a Christian business. And the bigger vision 
of the cathedral of renewing the city and building the kingdom of God. I want you to see three layers to this vision here. We got bricks, we got walls, and we got cathedrals. I want to go through, as I'm closing here, I'm starting to close, which means nothing, you know that. <laughs> I have six walls. Sometimes my mouth says words, and I'm like, I didn't mean that. Why did I say that? We have six walls. Here's, here's wall number one that we're building. That is our relationship with Jesus Christ. Most foundational to everything else. Our relationship with Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is said to be the cornerstone of everything. We have to build everything on him. Now listen, Jesus saves us all by himself. Here's what that means. Our world is a battleground. And Jesus Christ did not throw down a rope for us to climb up and save ourselves. No, Jesus parachuted in to our world and he became a man and as he was the eternal son of God for all, from all eternity, he put on flesh and he dwelt among us and he lived the life that we failed to live and died the death that we deserve. And what he did is he came and he threw us over his shoulder and he saves us all by himself. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We weren't wounded on the battlefield. We were dead. And Jesus throws us over his shoulder, and he rescues us, and he lays us on a table, let's say, and he pours out his Holy Spirit to us, and he fills us with faith, and he gives us the, the, the gifts of faith and repentance, and we're brought to new spiritual life. But here's the reality. We come, in one sense, like Frankenstein. We wake up to new spiritual life, and we're in a war zone. And from that moment on, our salvation was nothing but grace, all Jesus. But from that moment on, here's the idea. We begin to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. God put our salvation into us. God put everything we need for life and godliness into us. And now we begin to work that out. So, the Christian life, building on your relationship with Jesus, is a lot of work. And a lot of warring, a lot of fighting. We need to know God and not just some kind of fuzzy way either. So we need theology, the knowledge of God, and we don't need fuzzy theology. Fuzzy theology creates shoddy work. Okay, Here, what do I mean by that? If you have an unclear, version, an unclear vision of God and what he's like and what he expects for you, the work that you're going to be building is going to create a crooked wall. Why is it going to create a crooked wall? Because the word of God is a plumb line. The word of God is a level. The word of God is what is meant to straighten us out. So if you're just working and just putting your head down and working and never returning to the word of God, you're going to build something that's not going to last the test of time. Poor theology will lead to poor work. You might be working hard, but if you're working hard at the wrong thing with the wrong vision of God, you're going to create poor work. We need to know God clearly, and the only way we can do that is through studying the eternal, divinely inspired word of God. How are you going to take every thought captive if you don't know the scriptures? How are you going to push back against worldly philosophies if you don't know Christian philosophies, Christian theology? How will you build your walk with Christ if you don't know Christ as he's revealed to us in the scriptures. So what does this mean? One of the things God does when he saves us, he turns us into a learner. Do you realize that's the original name for Christians wasn't Christian, it was disciple. It was a learner, a person that goes to Jesus and says, teach me how to live my life. Teach me everything about everything. What do you got to do? You got to be a learner. You got to read the Bible. You got to read good Christian books. And I said good for a reason. Everything on Amazon's Christian list is not Christian, nor is it good. Ladies, you should be really careful with any. Remember, they said, don't judge a book by its cover. Ladies, you should believe that. Don't just, ooh, that's a pretty book. It's got flowers and stuff on it, and it says Jesus. I'm sure it's good. No, it's not. Many of that is worldly philosophy packaged with a little bit of Jesus. Read the scriptures. Read good Christian books. Listen to podcasts. Download the Canon Plus app on your phone and get all kinds of books and all kinds of audiobooks and all kinds of podcasts. Fill yourself with good stuff. If you don't know what's good, send an email to your pastors. We love those emails. 
This is the one email that I feel confident responding to every time. What should I be reading? What should I be learning? What should I be going? What's some good podcasts? Listen, Christian, this should be your life. This should be something you do every single day of your life. You come to the word and you drink. You come to the word and you eat. And if you're not, you're going to get taken out by the enemy or you're going to build something that won't last. You're going to build a family that's crooked. You're going to build a business that crook, that's crooked. And as soon as the weight and the pressure of the things that are going to come your way come upon it, it's going to crash and burn. Wall number two. We're to build, all of us, men and women, we're to build Christian character and virtue. Turn your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 9. Look what, look what, he, look what Peter says to us here. <clears throat> Verse 3, his divine power, God's divine power has granted to us all or all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him, theology, who called us to his own glory and excellence. Here's what that's saying. If you're a Christian, when God resurrected you, remember, and he put stuff in you, what he put in you was everything you need for life and godliness. But here's what you're going to see. Many of those things he put in you were in seed form. And they need to be watered, and they need to be nurtured, and they need to grow up, right? So God has put these things in you in salvation, and now we need to work them out. What he put in, we work out. This is what that looks like. By which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. We're meant to believe the promises of God and build our lives on the promises of God. So that through them, through what? The promises, you may become partakers of the divine nature. This is one of the most spectacular promises of the Christian life that somehow, some way, we are going to be brought up into God and know him in some intimate way, partakers in the divine nature. Keep going. I don't have time to get into it. Having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of simple desire, he rescued us out of the world, made us new, cleansed us. But look at this. Why did he do all that? Why did he save us? Why did he put in everything we need for life and godliness? Verse 5. For this very reason, make every effort, effort, men and women, God saved you without any effort of your own. But now once he saved you, make every effort. This is going to take everything you've got. Work hard, look, to supplement your faith. Well, I just believe if faith is enough. No, no, you need supplements. What do you supplement your faith with? Look at this. Virtue. What is virtue? Virtue is self-control. Virtue is discipline. Virtue is courage. Virtue is justice. We are taught that we're not meant to be baby Christians our whole life. We're meant to grow up and become men and women of virtue, of character. That the world looks at and says, oh, they're different than we are. He keeps going on. And with virtue, with knowledge... And knowledge with self-control. And self-control with steadfastness. And steadfastness with godliness. And godliness with brotherly affection. And brotherly affection with love. <clears throat> We're meant to grow up. We shouldn't. Christian kids shouldn't look like worldly kids. Christian parents shouldn't look like worldly parents. We're called to grow up and develop virtue. Look what this next verse says. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing. So we're to be growing in all of these things. Nobody has perfected any of those. Like we're growing into them. Look, if we're growing in them, they will keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of Lord Jesus Christ. We have been raised by a generation of Christians who have been unfruitful and ineffective for the gospel of Jesus Christ. They haven't had the character to, to work and to build for the kingdom of God. They've been wanting to go to heaven when they die and live like the rest of the world and be entertained like the rest of the world. And no wonder we look around us and the, all the great Christian institutions seem like they're crumbling. 
Will you be a person that builds the wall of your own integrity, your own character, your own virtue? Every single day. How do you do this? You become a bricklayer, a faithful bricklayer by being consistent and showing up and reading your Bible, rain or shine. You're here to lay bricks for 8 to 16 hours a day. I'm here to make bricks. I'm here to make sandwiches. I'm here to change diapers. I'm here to work hard for the kingdom of God. I'm here to sell whatever it is that I'm selling. I'm here to do it for the kingdom of God. Wall number three, Christian marriage. I had the joy of marrying David Sanderson and Abby Culler this past week. Didn't know it, but they were in first service. That was pretty spectacular this morning. Starting their marriage out on the right foot. Two godly young people from our church that God has brought together over the past year. It was an absolute joy and a blessing to stand in front of them and all their friends and families and preach the gospel in word and in symbol. Paul tells us that marriage is a mystery. It's a mega mystery because it is a symbol that points to the reality of Jesus' relationship with the church. What does that mean? Men, we are commanded by God to love our wives as Jesus loves the church. And that is not a feeling. The Bible's definition of love has very little to do with feelings. I'm tempted to say almost nothing. Love is love in action. If there is no action, it is not love. How did Jesus love us? He did not love us by sitting in the, in the temple and read the Bible and gushing over us. Oh, your people, oh, I just feel for them, Lord. No, Jesus left heaven for us. Jesus lived for us. Jesus worked for us. Jesus sacrificed for us. Jesus laid down his life for us. Jesus bled for us, and Jesus ultimately died for us. So men, here's the great news. That is how we are to love our wives. We are to provide for them. We are to never make them work for our love. Another way to say that is our love, should, we should be the ones that, that initiate the love. Our love should move towards them and not make them work for our love and then res we respond to them. Just as Christ loved you freely, graciously, so you are to love your wife with that one-way covenantal love. No matter what, that's what God's calling you to do. Paul also tells us that we are to, quote, sanctify our wives by the washing of water with the word of God that she might be holy and without blemish. That means, men, that we are called to lead our wives to understand and apply the word of God to all of life. That means that when we receive our, our wives, many times they have some blemishes and that we're meant to apply the word of God to them and lead them in such a way that they grow and they flourish. Now that is very difficult. And, and for a lot of the men in this room, one of the reasons that's so difficult is because when we met our wife, she was a Christian and we were not. And she was following Jesus and we were following her. We, we didn't mind that view. And then she said one day, well, I can't be with you unless you, you follow Jesus. And then we're like, I follow Jesus. What does that mean? I'll go to church. I'll go to church. I'll go to church, right? And here's the deal. That might be enough to get some girls to put a ring on it, right? But before long, you will find out that she really wants a man to lead her. She really wants a man that loves Jesus. And so pretty, pretty soon what she starts doing is saying things like, we going to church? And his, or whatever you want, babe, doesn't really do it for her. Or why is he not reading his Bible? Is he really a Christian? Why does he never lead us into the things of God? 
And then she begins to get pretty frustrated with this whole thing. And men, if that's you here, the calling of God to you is to step up and lead. Now, how, how are you going to do that? What does that mean? Well, first, you need to be hungry for the word of God. You need to have a holy curiosity that drives us every day to his word. You got to just look, have eyes that see around you how big of a fool that we usually are, how much we screw up and go, oh man, I said that wrong. I discipled the children wrong. I screwed up at work. I did this. And let that failure drive you to the word of God to say, put your plumb line against my wall, Lord. Straighten me up. Teach me what wisdom looks like. Teach me the right way that I should go. Have that holy curiosity. And then what? Read the Bible. Listen to podcasts. Consume good Christian books and sermons. We have to be constant, lifelong learners who take what we are learning and pass it on to our wife and kids. Our, our wives like that. God has given us our wife, men. And it is our responsibility to present her back to him on the last day more holy than when we received her. Her future glory is to far outshine her present glory. Men, are you working for that? She wants you to pay the bills. She does. She wants you to clean up after yourself. She does. But she also wants this. She wants you to lead her spiritually, especially. Now, if you just got married, young man, you got to lean into this and you got to work hard and you got to learn it because it's going to get worse when you have babies. And then she's going to be looking at you like, you better teach that boy something. And that something better be from the word of God. You better lead that little girl in a way that honors her maker and her creator and what the word of God says. Are you working for that? Are you being pulled along by that vision of life? I'm not just building bricks. I'm building a wall, and that wall is going to be a part of a cathedral, the kingdom of God. Are you fighting to defend that reality? Men, you've been given, if you've been given daughters, if you've been given sons, the world is out to kill them, to attack them, to destroy them. You've been given a sword. Can you use that sword? I got no time restraints in the second service, so I can use this illustration. Couldn't in the first. Here's the reality. You're, you, if you read the Lord of the Rings or you watch the Lord of the Rings, get it out of your system. Go ahead. Get it out of your system. Whatever. Right? He's been deceived by lies, and he's been put in this drunken stupor where he can hardly lift up his eyes, and he hardly knows what he's made for, and he's not ruling. He's been deceived, and his kingdom is at, is, is at the brink of being destroyed by the enemy. And of course, Gandalf stands up in front of him, Gandalf the White, and he drives this sickness from him. But one of the things he says, as soon as he gets free of that, is your hands would know their strength again if they grabbed the hilt of your sword. Men, grab your sword. And that's this right here. And get to know it better than you know the basketball scores, the football scores, the baseball scores, whatever it is. Know this and fight for your family. God commands men to love their wives. And he commands women to respect their husbands. Ladies, you are to help your husbands grow in their roles as husbands and fathers by respecting them. Not criticizing them, not nagging them, not trying to emotionally manipulate them to get them to do what you want them to do. Here's one of the realities that I've seen in over 20 years of doing ministry. Women that have a weak husband, they like it at first because he basically does everything that she wants him to do. And then they start complaining about him not having a backbone and him not knowing his sword and him not being strong enough and him not leading. Ladies, you better be aware of this. The first thing that's going to happen when he learns his strength again and he grips that sword again and he gets a, a, a strong back is he's going to offend you. He's not going to serve your idols. 
What's your idol? More than likely, a tidy home. More than likely, an image of a perfect family. More than likely, whatever it is, your image, but you're going to want him to serve it, and the first thing he's going to do is go, oh, no, I'm not doing that anymore. We're going to follow Jesus. It's going to offend you. Be ready for it. There's a reason why, ladies, the Proverbs is full of warning against the nagging woman. Solomon might have known one or two. He had a thousand wives. And he said, the na a nagging woman is like the constant dripping of a roof. He had a lot of dripping roofs in his life. Okay? You'll never nag your man into anything that God is calling him to do. You'll never. Just like men, the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. You're never going to be mad enough at your wife to get her to do to, to respect you and, and to honor you. Ladies, you'll never nag him to get him to lead you. It'll never work. So, ladies, are you respecting your husbands? Wall number four, the Christian family. Parenting and developing a truly Christian household takes a ton of work and, and warfare. Parents would do really well by reading a chapter in Proverbs every single day. Proverbs is a book written by King Solomon to his son. It's about the discipleship of children. He is the wisest man to ever live, and he's meant to teach them knowledge, but it begins with God and wisdom. It begins with God. He, Proverbs is meant to teach our children how the world works and that they must, listen, adjust themselves to fit the world and not expect the world to adjust to them or their feelings. Fathers and mothers, we are called by God to build strong Christian families, and we are called to defend them from the ungodly attacks of the enemy. I've met, in 20 years of ministry, I've met many parents that have said things to me, I'm sending my kids to public schools so they can be a light in the midst of darkness. I understand that sentiment. I believed that sentiment at one time. But here's how I'm responding to those parents now. You are sending your children into an active war zone. Have you put them through boot camp? Do they know their rifle? Can they aim and shoot straight? Do they know the lies of the enemy? Have you discipled them to understand the lies of secularism and the lies of humanism and the, the lies of the agnostic education that they will receive? Are they trained? Because we don't even see 18-year-olds into battle without first putting them through boot camp. We need to disciple our children. We need to be talking to them about Scripture often, about God and His love for Him. Our, our children need to see a vision of the flourishing Christian life. We need to make sure that they know, first and foremost, that God is good and He wants them to live a good life. Psalm 18, or 16, 11 says this, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Children, this is what your parents want for you. There is joy in God that you'll never find anywhere else. There are pleasures to be found at the right hand of God that you'll never find in the world. The world promises them, and it delivers nothing but destruction and damnation. The world is lying at, to you at every turn. If you want joy, if you want pleasures forevermore, that's only found at the right hand of God. Yes, the way of Christ is narrow and it's difficult and it's a battle, but it leads to everlasting joy. The way of Satan is wide and you can do whatever you want because he doesn't care about you and it leads to destruction. We also need to be teaching them that we are in a battle and they have a real enemy who wants to steal from them, kill them, and destroy them. We need to help them fight by uncovering the enemy's tactics when we see them. As you're watching a movie or a show together, push pause on the dang thing. When they give you some secular humanistic philosophy of life that can destroy them, like this, follow your heart. Pause that movie and say, what happens, children, when you follow your heart? Pull up some examples of all the Hollywood movie stars that have followed their heart and how well did that go for them? Follow your heart straight to the pit of hell. 
yeah, it's Disney and it's fun and it's laughing. Oh, I follow your heart. And there's a laugh track behind it and everything's good. That's how the devil wants to deceive. Pause that movie and give them the truth of the word of God. And eventually, hopefully your kids will go, mine last week, so this movie's woke. I was like, yes! Wall number five, I know I'm over. This is, you're at the 1030 service, it's your fault. Christian industry, God has called you to make a living and build something for his kingdom. That might be a business, that might be a career, that might be a sandwich for the glory of God. Christian industry sees everything except sin as sacred work. Christian industry sees everything except sin as sacred work. We are told to be hardworking, industrious, and productive Christians. The man or woman who sleeps too much, spends too much time on video games or social media or Netflix is squandering away the only life that they have been given, and they will not reap the reward of the diligent. Jesus himself said that he rewards the hardworking farmer, that he rewards the risk-taking investor to whom much is given, much is required. Lastly, wall number six, and I don't think my voice could handle another wall, Christian ministry. God has called all of us to build his church, to serve his mission in the world in some way. Of course, by giving financially to it, but also by serving serving our kids, by serving in the hospitality area. If you're a Christian, God's calling you to serve in some way. Get involved in the fight. Get involved in building this church. Be a part of a missional community. Be hospitable and have your neighbors over for dinner. Have your missional community over for dinner. Be on mission at your workplace or in your neighborhood. God's calling us, listen, to build and to defend. That's our mission. Let me pray for us. Gracious Father, you are good. I pray that you would help all of us this morning. See, if we want the good life, we must come to you, the only one who's given himself ultimately for us. Those who have never believed, would they put their faith in you this morning and would you take away their sins right now and you bring them into this body of believers? And for those of us who have had our sins washed and we are Christians and we are in the body, would you inspire us this morning with a vision of a totally renewed earth where the kingdom of God is on this earth? Show us, Lord, how the walls that we built and the stones that we cut and laid, let us get a glorious glimpse of our construction work and how it's going to it's building the kingdom of God. It's connected to the kingdom of God. Every sandwich that gets made, every diaper that gets changed, you said every cup of cold water that gets handed out, you would reward. Would you do that? And this morning as we come to the Lord's table, remind us that though we are many, you made us one body. And we eat and drink of one cup this morning, the cup of Christ, and we are united, and these are our brothers and sisters in Christ, and we are laboring over the next generation to build the kingdom of God one brick at a time for your glory and our good and the joy of our city. In Jesus' name I pray, amen and amen.